New Vintage Church, can we give the worship team a round of applause this morning? They're killing it. And already God is speaking to us through iPhone notifications this morning. Did you guys hear that? That was crazy. Um, you guys can be seated. Um, well, good morning, New Vintage Church. My name is Scotty. Uh, I'm the youth pastor here, and sometimes our wonderful head pastor, Tim, allows me to come up and speak uh, for you guys. And so uh, that's what's going on this morning. Real quick, uh, I do want to give a shout out, because uh, if anybody, I know a couple people here at this church and over in kids ministry involved, obviously, Marcus, our associate pastor, is the athletic director there. Um, Classical Academy High School here in Escondido just won the football championship yesterday. Can we just give them a round of applause? I want to give them a shout out. Uh, Coach Josiah Cruz uh, is a wonderful friend of mine, uh, and they were one and nine last year, and then they turned it around and won the championship this year. So uh, God's doing great things over there in their community. Uh, their FCA, their Christian club on campus, is rolling like 120 kids each week. Uh, so that's beautiful to see. I wanted to give them a quick shout out. This morning, however, uh, we are talking about the story of Solomon, uh, and I really hope you had a good Thanksgiving, uh, and we're going to follow it up with a story of Solomon that isn't necessarily the most uplifting story in the Bible uh, when you look at his entire life. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and pray and get started. We're going to kind of jump around uh, in the Bible today, but if you want to open up our main section that we're going to kind of be reading is in 1 Kings chapter 3, um, but we're going to go ahead and pray and get started. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your presence here. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time where we can just worship you. And Lord, and this morning I pray as we continue that you just speak. Uh, Lord, that some word that is heard uh, is yours, God, uh, and that you just uh, do what you want to do in people's hearts this morning. In your name, amen. So the man who's very excited, he kisses his wife goodbye, he kisses his kids goodbye, and he gets in the chariot and he's on his way. He was chosen by his king to go and listen to this King Solomon guy who word has started to spread about him very fast. And it says that the kingdom that he rules over has silver that is more plentiful than the stone that the buildings are made of. And it has cedar wood more plentiful than the rest of the wood in the city combined. And this king is so wise and he gets chosen to go learn from this king. And so for the next two days as he travels in this chariot, he makes sure he has all his writing utensils. And he makes sure he's ready to go because he gets to sit down and listen to this guy. And if the rumors are true, he's going to learn about things about the ocean that we never even knew. Things about plants that apparently only he knows. Animals. And think about just wisdom and how to live life. And he is just so excited. And the day that he finally gets there, the rumors are true. Silver is more plentiful than stone. Cedar wood is more plentiful than all the wood combined. And he's going through and he sees Solomon's grand palace. And he sees the famous temple. And he's excited. And sure enough, he gets to step in today and sit down and hear from this king. And listen to what he has to say. Solomon was the wisest man on the planet up till then, and we will never see anything like him. The Bible says so. And today I want to kind of break down his life in a way that I wish I could tell you that this morning you were showing up to listen to a sermon that had three great, great points that all started with the same letter, uh, and we were going to walk home today with, you know, some encouragement. 
Today is going to be a little more of a history lesson because I want to make sure that we are set up in a way to receive the Christmas season correctly. And so today we're going to kind of go through this a little more like a history lesson um, with a common theme that threads through the entire path. Um, And we will get to that in a second. But Solomon's life, uh, he starts, he is David's son. So last week, if you were here, uh, Pastor Marcus spoke, he spoke about David and all of his life. Um, And so we are continuing that. And the series that we did before that was Ruth, and we'll get to the lineage of how this all plays into in a second. Um, But so we're talking about Solomon, who is David's son, who takes over as king after David is done. And when David's life has looked like it's coming to an end, um, it's set up for Solomon to take over as king. He was anointed. He was chosen by God. But Solomon's half-brothers essentially try and steal the throne from him, essentially try and, like, sneak their way in to take over as king. Um, But luckily, some quick work by Solomon and his mom Bathsheba um, kind of fixes the whole thing, and, and Solomon ends up on the throne like he's supposed to be. And so begins the start of our theme throughout today's history lesson. We cannot mess up as humans what God has already set in place to do. When God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it, and there's nothing that we can do to mess it up. And when he has called us to something, we can walk with him and get to that calling, um, but we can never run far enough away where he's just going to give up on us. And so he, he shows up, his kingship starts with family conflict. I'm sure none of us have any of that, especially coming out of Thanksgiving. Um, and it, he arrives as a king, and what's really cool to me is he arrives as a king on the day of his like, inauguration. He shows up on a mule, which I think is really cool because that mirrors how Jesus will show up on the donkey later. Um, but he, he shows up on a mule, and he takes over as king, and his start of his kingship, he is awesome. Dude is amazing at being a king. And and really the main reason for this is because God appears to Solomon and Solomon asks him for wisdom. So this is where we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 3. Now Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child. Now he's 20 years old, somewhere between 19 and 22 years old, but most people think he's right at 20 um, when he takes over as king. And I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern these great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor so that you in your lifetime will have no equal among kings. And then when you jump down to 1 Kings chapter 4, um, it explains essentially the vastness of the gift that God gave to wisdom, or God gave to Solomon. In verse 29, it says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. 
Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan, the Ezraite, who apparently was very smart. He was wiser than He-Man. He was wiser than He-Man. I have the power. No, Solomon's got the power, man. He was wiser than He-Man. It's probably not the same He-Man, actually. He was wiser than all of these guys they name off. By the way, if you or anybody you know uh, is looking for uh, baby names, you're going to see a lot of names today that you can write down as candidates. There's some of them right there. Um, His fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. This man was dropping albums every single week. Move over Taylor Swift, move over the Beatles. This guy was dropping albums every single week. Could you imagine being an Israelite at the time and walking around, you go over to your friend's house, like, dude, I got the new Solomon album. He's like, yeah, I got that one last week. Like, no, this is a new one. It's got 50 more songs. So they all sit down and have a listening party, and they're like, dude, this guy is amazing, amazing artist. A thousand and five songs. He spoke about plant life the cedar of Lebanon, the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about the animals, the birds, the reptiles, the fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by the kings of the world who had heard his wisdom. He was hosting the Global Leadership Summit before it was cool. This guy was holding conferences. So yeah, send all your people. Uh, We're going to spread this knowledge, which I think was cool. It wasn't just, hey, God, make me the most wise, and I'm going to keep it to myself. He was constantly spreading that wisdom in any way he could. Proverbs, songs, holding conferences, and teaching to others. And then kind of the thing that people focus on most when it comes to Solomon, he builds the temple of God. Um, And you can find this whole building process in two chapters of the Bible, 1 Kings 5 and 6. Um, it, It details out every part of the temple, and it is impressive. And at the core of what the temple was supposed to be is it was supposed to mirror the Garden of Eden. Because the Garden of Eden was the original place where God could dwell with his people. And so the idea behind the temple is here again is a place where God can dwell with his people. Now, this wasn't a place that Solomon or anybody else believed that could contain the presence of God. It was just a place where God could dwell with his people. And in fact, a lot of the artwork and architecture within the temple mirrored the garden. Uh, w- through how they made it, the artwork they put on the walls. It's, it's supposed to be a representation of the original Garden of Eden, a place where God dwells with his people. And then there were priests and Levites that were put there, and their whole job was to upkeep the temple, make sure this place looks great, right? Make sure it's all washed, that there's no marks on anything, because again, this is God's place where he gets to dwell with his people. So he's super smart, he's writing songs, he's holding conferences, he builds the temple. And then we have a a great three books worth of his knowledge. Um, So he writes three books that end up getting put in our Bible. He writes Proverbs, right, which again, we just read that he wrote 3,000 Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes, and he wrote Song of Songs. And these books in our Bible, again, they're written by the smartest person we've ever seen on earth, right, outside of Jesus, right? 
the smartest non-Jesus human we've ever seen on this planet. And so I think it's important that we sometimes pay attention to these. Um, I feel like Proverbs gets a lot of use, right? Song of Songs is, Song of Songs. Um, and Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. And so today, uh, I'm going to put a little bit of emphasis on, on Song of Songs. No, I'm just kidding. Could you imagine the youth pastor takes us through Song of Songs? Tim would be calling me right now. Um, no, Ecclesiastes. I want to focus a little bit on this book. Because if we think about it, sometimes I find myself, especially growing up, I was like, wouldn't it be nice <laughs> to be Solomon? To have all this wisdom, and then also God blessed me with all this wealth and health. <laughs> and I get my city to the point where everyone has silver, and I have anything and everything I could ever want. And Ecclesiastes is interesting because it takes us through, essentially, Solomon at the end of it all looks at it and goes, it is all, the Hebrew word is hevel, which in today's translation, it, it translates into kind of smoke, van vanity, meaningless. It, it, it doesn't matter. It is all smoke. Essentially, the message is you can't take any of it with you anyway. And he explains time after time after time, I was chasing this, I went after this, I was chasing this, or I saw people chasing after this, and alas, it did not matter. And so, do we have the slide with the couple of verses from Ecclesiastes? Um, yeah, so this is in chapter 1, I've seen everything done under the sun, behold, it is all vanity and striving after the wind. Uh, chapter 2. Uh, has a couple golden nuggets. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done for the toil, and I expanded in doing it. Behold, it was all vanity, striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Again, later in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when, we, when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. And then in chapter 3, it's probably my favorite part of Ecclesiastes. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace a time and refrain from embracing, a time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, a time to mend, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace." And essentially here and throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, all of these things, they're gonna happen. And there's nothing you can do from stopping it. When you go throughout life, you will experience all these things. And there are points where he says, be thankful. Like, these great things are gifts from God and we get to experience them. It's beautiful. But don't get it twisted. It is not going to last. And there's really not much we can do to keep those great things from lasting. Soon enough, it'll be the opposite. And time through and time through, in Ecclesiastes 11, he says, do whatever your heart desires. Do 
follow your heart desires, do whatever you want. And he said earlier in that chapter two verse, I did that. Whatever my heart desired, I went after. And we're going to see that in a second. And then in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14, it concludes. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, which is very reminiscent of the greatest commandment that Jesus gives later. Love God, love your neighbor. Fear God, keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring in every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Solomon leaned into doing whatever he wanted. <laughs> and just like you said, God will bring judgment onto it. Now, I want to clear up some things when it comes to Ecclesiastes. I'm not saying that, you know, don't worry about your education. Don't worry about your job. Just forget it. I'm just not going to try anymore because it doesn't mean anything. No, go after those things. Do those things. Um, do them as if you were doing them for God. But the moment we start to take pride in the, yeah, my GPA is, yeah, I just got this raise, yeah, I'm actually the best at, the moment we start to take pride in it is where Ecclesiastes starts to come into play, where I wish I could go, hey, just give this a read <laughs> and realize that at the end of the day, fear God, keep his commandments. And that's what matters. That's what's going to stay eternal. And so he writes all of these things. And again, he writes, you know, make sure you know that God is going to judge all of our actions. And he does. Because <laughs> Solomon, it starts to go downhill. And when it starts to go downhill, it starts to go downhill very, very fast. So the temple's corruption starts. Um, and it, it kind of is because of Solomon's actions. Solomon starts to have a lot of relationships, a lot of relationships, um, and they start by him saying, oh, this will create a political alliance, so I'll marry this kingdom's princess, or this king's daughter, or this person, and political alliances, political alliances, and then it just becomes I'm just going to apparently marry whoever I want because he ends up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, I grew up in a house for the majority of my life with just my mom and my sister. And then when my mom got remarried, I gained three more stepsisters. The bachelor and bachelorette was on a lot. And all I can imagine Solomon's life at this point being like is the bachelor every single week, but everyone just continues to get a rose. And, you know, there's always that person that I remember, like, my sister's talking about, like, oh, we don't like her, we don't like him, they create problems, and they just stay week after week after week, and no one ever goes home. And the chaos that this must have caused. And we start to see it because Solomon starts to want everybody to get along a little bit better, he wants everyone to make sure that, you know, they're included, and so he starts adopting their gods and their idols into what they do and it starts to make its way throughout the entire kingdom and it starts to just corrupt everything it has compromises and then god kind of has enough and says yeah uh no no we're done with this and he raises up an adversary against solomon and it starts a revolution starts a civil war 
And from here, we see the downfall of the United Kingdom of Israel. It just starts to go down. And you can read about it all throughout First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. I will tell you what, if someone wants to make the next hit TV show about like, you know, the war over the throne and who was king at the time and, and drama without, within the entire story, they just need to use the Kings and Chronicles. It is, if you want to read a good book that has all of that in it, just go home and read these, I guess, four books. Kings and Chronicles were written as one, but we chopped them up into two. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It is a wild series of events that leads to the downfall of Israel, splitting up into Israel and Judah, and then ultimately Babylon comes in, takes over, and the exile of Israel. But God makes sure as, as this starts, God says this, I will not take Israel out of Solomon's hands because I promised that he would be king until the end of his days. So it's when he dies that all this starts. And he also promised David that the Messiah would come from his bloodline. And we see it at the end of 2 Kings. We'll get to that in a second, but it's a beautiful thing. Remember, we cannot mess up what God is trying to do. I guess trying to do. What God will do. What God has already set in motion, we cannot mess up with human error. The temple, uh, human corruption. Again, remember, uh, it mirrored the garden. So originally the garden is made as a place where God's people will dwell with him. Then human corruption gets in the way and it's over. Temple, same thing. Human corruption gets in the way and it downfall. And we know later that the temple is completely destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, and, and the temple is an interesting problem that we have. Um, it's the, the problem of the garden and the temple um, is an interesting problem that we had. And, and at this point, the garden is gone, and now the temple is gone. And so the place where God is, gets to dwell with his people is gone. The nation's gone, they're in exile, but there is hope. This is how 2 Kings ends. In the 37th year of the exile of the Jehoiakim king of Judah, in the year of that guy, Awel Marduk, he became the king of Babylon and he released Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him, gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance for as long as he lived. That's David's bloodline. He's taking care of his promise. God is taking care of his promise. There will always be a king of Israel, of Judah, from David's bloodline, and the Messiah will ultimately come to him. God is faithful. We cannot mess up his plans. I wonder how many times Israel thought, now nah, it's actually over for us this time. It's actually over. We messed up way too much this time. And God is faithful time and time again because he made his promise to them. He made his promise to David. And he keeps his promise. And we see it leads to 
the, ultimately what we see in Matthew 1 of the lineage from Abraham all the way through Jesus. Um, and it's 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. It's really cool. Here it is up on the, I'm not going to go through all of these things. Again, if you're writing down baby names, now's the time to start jotting down notes because some of these names are wild. Um, but in the middle of this, we see Ruth right here. Again, remember we just had uh, the whole series where we kind of went through her journey um, and how, you know, God saved, once again, that bloodline. Um, and then it, you have King David. So here, from Abraham to David, 14 generations. Then you have David to the exile, uh, which is on the next slide. Again, some fantastic names. Um, and, and so we have David all the way through the exile, and then from the exile all the way through Jesus. Um, at, you know, it, all the way through. Uh, Jeconiah, uh, right there, the name you see, Jeconiah, is the same as Jehoiakim, the guy that we were just talking about. It's just Greek and Hebrew names. Um, so uh, if you see that and you're like, wait, I thought that was, it's the same guy, just different languages. Um, sorry, I'm bouncing all, the, all over the place. The slides person is on point today. Um, uh, and you can go to the final part of this, and we see where it lands on Jesus, the Messiah. And right after this, it talks about how 14 generations between each block. I think that's awesome. God is just so smart and so good at what he does. Here's the problem. We have the garden, God dwelling with his people. Human error messes it up, destroyed, gone. We have the temple, God dwelling with his people. Human error, corruption, it's destroyed, it's gone. There's a problem here. God wants to dwell with us. Why? Because he loves us. <laughs> he desires relationship for us, and so he desires the chance to get to dwell with us. But there has to be a solution. Jesus is that solution. At the end of this line, Jesus is that solution. There can't be human error. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God dwelling with his people. Jesus as a human, as a man, walking around with his people. And then we see his life throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His eventual death and resurrection. Defeats sin and death forever, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven. Now wait, what about Jesus being the solution of God dwelling with his people? Well, later, a <laughs> couple chapters later, the Holy Spirit arrives. God dwells with his people. We become the new temple. And that's why you hear when Christians say, your body is a temple. This is what it's referring to. It's mirroring back to the temple of Solomon. It's mirroring back to, to the garden. And yes, Solomon's downfall creates this whole thing, but you see this problem happen over and over again throughout the Old Testament. People trying to do it themselves gets in the way. Corruption, done. And so the final solution was Jesus paying for our sins, defeating death, so that we may allow the Holy Spirit, when we step into relationship with him, to come and dwell with us. And we become the temple. And through us becoming the temple, we gain an inherent value like no other. How, how many of you guys here either used to watch or have watched reruns of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? 
Anybody? Raise, any, raise your hands. I can kind of see. Raise them up high. All right, sweet. So today, um, I kind of want to play a version of who wants to be a millionaire, but I don't have a million dollars. So today, instead of playing who wants to be a millionaire, we are going to play who wants to be a person who gets $20. So I need a volunteer. Somebody, uh, some sort of brave soul can raise their hand. Uh, I need a volunteer right here. Uh, sir, can you stand up? Everybody give him a round of applause, please. Yes. What's your name, sir? Randy. Randy, Randy nice to meet you. Welcome to Who Wants to Be a Person Who Wins $20. Uh, this is how the game works. I'm going to ask you if you want $20, and then you just give me your answer. So, Randy, do you want $20? Yes. Yes, okay. Do you want $20? Do you still want the $20? Do you still want the $20? Do you still want the $20? <laughs> He's offering. Do you still want the $20? Why? I have ripped it up. I have crumbled it. I have stomped on it. It is battered and beat up right now. Why do you want the $20? Did you see the timing of that, everybody? The Holy Spirit's working this morning. It's still, say it again. It still has the same value. Why? Because when it was created, it was given a value that cannot be taken away. By its creator, it was given a value that cannot be taken away. Now, a piece of paper on its own doesn't have much worth. But when you put all these different symbols and stuff all over it, all of a sudden, it stays with its $20. Oh, Randy, this is yours. You can come up and, no, no, you can buy some people coffee. I'm, I'm serious. Come and be, everyone, give them a round of applause, please. There you go, Mr. Randy. It still has its inherent value. When we accept God, when we step into relationship with Jesus, and we allow the Holy Spirit then to come in and dwell with us, we become the temple, and we, become, we gain an inherent value that can never be taken away. We can get beat up, battered, bruised, torn apart, and it might look ugly from the outside, but the value will never change. And let me tell you, it, it's more than $20. <laughs> Is it an, it's an internal worth, and it's an internal chance to live life, and it's an eternal promise to live life the way that life was always supposed to be back in the garden. God dwelling with his people, walking with him. The temple, God dwelling with his people, being able to enjoy his presence. Jesus creating the way for the Holy Spirit so that we can become the temple. I think this is the story from Solomon. This is the history lesson from Solomon that we can get that sets us up perfectly for the Christmas season. When we step into the Christmas season this year, our theme is choose joy. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, uh, our head pastor Tim gave a great message through a video 
um, talking about, you know, four ways to best enjoy the, the holiday season, the Christmas season. And his first one is to choose joy daily. Why do we get to even choose joy daily? Because we have the hope that Jesus sets up for us. That we get to live eternal life with him and walk with him and live in his light even still while we're here on this earth and even when we mess up and even we have, we have our own error, it does not matter because we cannot mess up what God has already put into place. And so that's the attitude that I want us to move with into Christmas, knowing I get this hope. I get to choose joy, and I get to be the temple. I get God's presence in my life. And ultimately, one day, I will be face-to-face with him for eternity. And so that, Christian, is how we get to enter into the Christmas season and next week with our series of Choose Joy. For now, we are going to step into a time of communion. And so communion is a time where we get to remember the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us um, and thank him for that. And so we're going to move into that time now. Uh, if you did not get the elements as, as you came in, you should have, uh, there's, there's some uh, right here. Uh, if you missed them, you can just raise your hand and he'll get you the elements. Um, God wants relationship with us. God wants to dwell with us. When we accept his invite, and we say, yeah, Jesus, I'm about you. I believe you are my savior. I believe you are the one that paid for my sins, God gain his presence in our lives and we become the temple. It's a life like no other. And so during this time, Lord, we just want to say thank you for the sacrifice you paid to allow us to have that chance. God, we're excited to see what you're going to do through this Christmas season and the hope of your arrival on earth and what that means for us, God. Lord, we can't thank you enough. Lord, we love you. We praise you in your name. Amen.